Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Um, Andrea, I love how you're like, I'm going pink for color and flash, and I apparently went destitute opposite, but here we are today anyway. <laughs> um, I am really glad to be here with you all this morning, and I know it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is a complicated, challenging, and super exhausting time to be alive. You know, if you haven't heard, we're in the midst of a racial uprising, during a global pandemic, there's murder hornets, we're under a particularly corrupt political reality, and we're experiencing devastating fires all around us. This is alongside whatever normal life things you have happening. I know some of you have probably had kids, quit and started jobs, had mental health crises, had relationships start, and, and among many, many other things. And if you're like me, and I'm guessing that you are, these times can feel a little bit like a character pressure cooker, with this context bringing up some of the best and worst in who we are, mostly for me the worst, and leaving us with necessary work and growing to do with what's being revealed in us and about us. Some of us are realizing how tired we are, how much this time has taken out of us, and we've experienced the limits of our own human capacity. We may no longer have the internal buffers that we used to have to regulate how our feelings come out or how we engage with people that we love around us, especially in even people that we don't love, and that's even worse. We might be coping. We might want to be escaping in any way that we can. Some of us are literally in the midst of immediate danger, and others of us are just exhausted and trying to escape the inundation of sadness, pain, and intensity around us. Some of us maybe just need the word today, stop doom scrolling. Going through social media forever actually isn't going to save you or anyone else. So if you need to take a break, just I think some of you may need to hear that today. In all of that, Sustainability in who we are and what we're about is super tricky and seems kind of impossible in times like this. So today I want us to focus on a group of women in scripture who in the midst of the deep darkness around them, choose not to avert their eyes from pain, but that find ways to engage in both transforming the impacts of chaos and injustice in their community, but also let themselves be shaped into people who become more and more like good elders and ancestors in their community. They become people because of who they know God to be, who do the work to be bearers of good news, true and practical justice and lived freedom in the world. And they do all of this without having to be superheroes at all. So we're gonna spend a short time in the beginning of Exodus. And I love Exodus. It's a book about the liberation of an entire ethnic group of people from the hands and violence of their oppressors. It's the story about a group of folks being pulled from toxic empire realities and being invited to dream of a new type of world and community as God intends it. And this is specific a specifically a reality where all can be free, not just from enslavement, but to live fully as themselves. It's a story where people look at what's happening in their lives and community and lands head on, and they respond. Sometimes the people respond well, and oftentimes maybe the majority of the time they do not. And I love that in the story of Exodus, because it is also then a story of grace and patience, where God meets us where we are in the midst of our crisis, bad responses, social upheavals, oppression, despair, danger, and all of those things. And I know I need that grace and patience from God and from the community. So in the very beginning of the story in Exodus, I think a lot of us skip this part too. It says that the Hebrew people had become too numerous and their collective potential for power threatened the empire that they were in. Pharaoh, who's essentially the king of Egypt, responds to this by enslaving them in the name of national security. Additionally, he tells the Hebrew midwives to kill any male children that they are helping to give birth to. So not only does Pharaoh himself create a system of forced subjugation, but he tries to use the healthcare sphere to guarantee that the Hebrews are dehumanized. 
Systemic oppression almost always works like this, with one system of oppression building on top of another. And as we're in the midst of everything going on, I realize that we're still in the midst of Black Lives Matter, and it's not lost on me that the maternal death rates in Black women are two to three times higher than that of white women, and should they have a medical system that honors their lives enough to help them give birth, their babies may spend their entire lives being seen as threats. So in this story, the midwives find themselves in a situation that they are unable to look away from. But they're able to ask this question about how their lives might intersect, intersect with the tragedy in front of them. Can you imagine the fear and grief that Hebrew mothers felt as they went through their pregnancies and prepared to give birth, knowing that their sons were mandated to die? I am not a mother, and I cannot imagine that kind of pain, but as I see the mothers of slain Black men and trans women at the hands of police and white supremacy, I get a glimpse of the horrors that this text points us to. Enter the midwives. It's interesting to me that in this narrative that the earliest hero in Exodus is not Moses, nor is it even God, God's self, but it's a group of courageous women. They are the first and most effective activists and advocates in the text. It is not lost on me that the patriarchal lenses that we use for how we read the text prevent us from seeing these women as core parts of the story. The story tells us that the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, feared God and refused to participate in the system that was killing their boys. I love that in this story, that they get names. Not even Pharaoh, the most powerful person in Egypt, gets a name in this narrative, but these women do. Shifra and Pua refused to kill the children, and I bet they had a community of people that were with them too. I bet it wasn't just them. And this act of resistance reaches the Pharaoh's ear. So he calls them in, and they make up and rely on him believing an ethnic stereotype, saying that Hebrew women just give birth too fast and they can't stop it. Because of their work, they have this ear of Pharaoh and their vocation, and their vocation is something that intersects to create a barrier between the powerful and the vulnerable. They are in this way brave activists who show up and do their part, and for the most part, they get no credit from history compared to Moses, who right, only exists and lives in the world to become a liberator because of the women that honored his life and came before him. These women are good elders and ancestors. They are people who see the plight of the folks around them and do something about it. They themselves use the revolutionary work of bringing life into the world as a way of saving a part of a generation of Hebrew boys. They risked their lives, their jobs, and their status to make sure that people after them had a chance to live. Some of us aren't even willing to risk our reputation or our comfort. But Pharaoh, not to be beat by women who give birth too fast, escalates the situation in Exodus 1. He commands that the Hebrew babies be thrown into the Nile River to do the job. Like in our culture, violence always finds new means to oppress and take the lives of those on the margins. This becomes particularly true later in the Exodus narrative, as forces of nature, plagues, and systemic oppression intersect to create a more dire and complex reality for the people. And I think some of us right now, in this cultural and historical moment, feel that tension acutely. But the story is not done talking about courageous women. Next, we meet three more courageous women and good ancestors who lead the way for God's people to become free. Moses' mother, who is unnamed in the text, refuses to do violence to her child and hides the newborn Moses for her, with her for three months. Once again, imagine with me the fear that she lived with every day as she kept watch of him, hoping that he wouldn't be seen, heard, taken from her, or killed by the authorities. This is brutal. 
and at the point that it was too dangerous to hide him any longer, she crafts a basket to, uh, to be able to float in the river. So she indeed throws her child into the river, but not in the way that Pharaoh intended. Moses' mother and sister then go down to the river and send him away, hoping that he might live and that life somewhere else might provide a chance of safety for him. They're desperate. And then his sister stands by the shore and watches her baby brother float away. I am struck by the reality that she stays in the moment of pain and watches from a distance to see what might happen. She doesn't avert her eyes. She acts and she watches, and then she gets the chance to act again. And I think that this is core to becoming a good elder and ancestor. That we let the character and compassion of God and our love and belief in the dignity of all people so, sink so deeply in us that we live these cycles of action and reflection, seeing and responding, hearing and doing in such a way that both we and the world, even the little worlds around us, our family, see justice and greater peace. Providentially in this moment, Pharaoh's own daughter goes down to bathe the Nile at this very, very moment. She sees the basket with Moses in the water and has compassion on him when she hears him cry. It's a reflection of his humanity. And let's be honest, this is a super low bar. But it's fascinating in this story that Moses, when he's seen as a beloved baby, even though they know he's a Hebrew, that he's worth saving. Pharaoh's daughter finds that the issue is no longer a far-out issue of those people but a human baby who's right in front of her. What this tells me is that proximity matters in how we see, honor, and believe people who aren't like us. Proximity helps us to believe that people's bodies and stories matter. When we are close to suffering, it compels us to act. And we see that here. And I can tell, even in the last few days, how much more I feel for people who are experiencing the devastation of fires in Australia or of hurricanes across the country as we experience a natural disaster up close. It shouldn't take that, but I think as it does, we should be shaped by it. So next in the story, Moses' sister then offers, going up to Pharaoh's daughter, to find a woman to nurse the child, and reunites Moses with his mother. His mother probably thought that she would never see her child again, fearing the very worst for his life. But the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter and the shrewd courage of Miriam to approach a powerful stranger on a river make it so that he not only lives, but that his mother gets to see and participate in his life. Justice for Moses, and life for Moses, come because a group of women subvert the power structures of the day to save him. And I imagine that they didn't just become this way overnight. The text tells us that they fear and know God, and over the long haul, this gives them the capacity to respond when it matters. What I love about the story of these women is that their bar for justice and compassion in life is so high that they're compelled to risk their own lives and well-being to save their people. And it is because of them, again, that Moses can partner with God to save them from oppression and enslavement later. It is a divine and multi-generational partnership to rescue and save the people. They have this creativity that's brought forth because they fear God and love people, even children that were not their own. These women are the ones who set the tone for Moses' life. They see the need to be good elders and ancestors, people who sustain the lives of those coming after them, and we so often forget them in the story. Moses is not an independent hero. He is a person who comes from a legacy of powerful women in whose footsteps he follows. So, as I've been watching activists out in the streets, literally risking their lives, whether at the hands of police or COVID-19, I see the stories of these women in Exodus. 
I am watching Black, queer women and femmes leading the charge for Black Lives Mattering, and we're seeing the rumblings of systemic change even as they work. They are seeing the death of their siblings, and they're saying no with their bodies and their time and their money and encouraging us who may be more complacent to do the same. They are so like Shifra and Pua. I see it in the stories of folks from Mexico coming to help us fight fires, despite the vitriol and propaganda spouted out by our administration over the years. I see it in the expansive mutual aid efforts to mitigate impacts of COVID, fire, systemic oppression, and police brutality. The Hebrew midwives are doing justice and activism for their people, sure. But I also see this opportunity for allies in this story, people who aren't on the front lines or who are, whose communities aren't directly affected. Pharaoh's daughter sees the impact of an injustice started by her people when it comes to her face to face. And she doesn't abdicate responsibility to someone else, make excuses about just because her dad was oppressive doesn't mean that she is, nor does she make it about her feelings about it. She instead takes more responsibility than is asked of her and joins her story to the story of the marginalized. And this all happens before a single mention of God's movement in the story. God, God's self, takes the baton from these courageous women to save the people. It isn't until nearly an entire chapter later that we see God show up or act at all. And what this tells me is that what we know about God and what we experience about God in our day to day allows us to have deep creativity and courage that then God uses to work out a legacy of freedom in and through us. It also tells me that the work of God might not look explicit, flashy, spiritual, or like anything we would expect. It may not even come through the people that we would expect. It almost always doesn't, actually. The problem theologically for many of us, though, is that we've been taught to see ourselves as the heroes in the story. To see ourselves as Moses, the primary one who should lead in liberating or rescuing. But what we're given in the earliest point in this scripture in Exodus is that regular people moved with compassion become good elders and ancestors. Our job in that way isn't to be God. It is to be fully human, partnering with God however God would invite us or participate with us. So to me, this season is a critical time of reflection. How will we think about our money, our time, other people's value? How will we help our families and communities become more just and loving and compassionate? How will we let the combination of tragedies around us shape us, not into cynical people, because that's what I am prone to, cynical people who can critique all of the issues well and have the right words for it, but rather into people who can and will leave a legacy for those after us? What if we work together to curb climate change and honor indigenous peoples in such a way that we don't see disasters at this level with fires ever again? What if we leave a legacy where no one has to say that Black lives matter because we've eliminated anti-Blackness. Where there's no need to combat police brutality because policing no longer needs to exist as it does because we've developed better community tools than force and violence. What if we left a legacy where reparations for wrongs done were normal because God throughout scripture honors and blesses those who restore what they and their people destroy? What if later generations never had to choose between their faith community and their gender or sexual identity because we destroy homophobia and transphobia in our midst? What if we let this time shape us into good ancestors in the spirit of these women in Exodus as they model their present and liberating God? With all of that in this season, I think we might find ourselves caught in the flurry of activity and a multitude of shoulds. We might be acting out of motives that we may not even be aware of as we try to engage with everything around us, and that's okay. This might look like a desire not to be the bad or silent white person, it might be trying to avoid being called out or tiptoeing around trying not to make mistakes in how we respond to things. 
We might want to look woke or just or vulnerable or compassionate enough. We may just want to have integrity to ourselves, but not know how to do that. And that's fair, but our motivations or our intentions only carry us so far. Because at some point, activism or our desire to do the right thing will be limited by our character and our resilience. If we are to follow Jesus and pursue God's peace in the world, we need to have a spirituality and praxis that sets us up long-term to be about what we're acting about and talking about and learning about right now. Right, because none of the work that's happening right now, none of the chaos that's happening right now is new. It's just an evolution of things that we've seen before. And it's in our faces, as we would call, the worst year ever of 2020. And don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for all of the movement and participation I've seen this year. I just fear that once the peak of the chaos has passed, that we'll find ourselves standing on the moving walkway of complicity and oppression that, without our active forward movement, will land us living outside of the values that we're currently espousing. It is a mark of privilege to engage in movements when they are immediate or popular. It is inherently another thing to have our lives shaped by these things that we participate in and live them out in the day-to-day -day mundanity of our lives. Honestly, all we're talking about right now is integrity over the long haul. It's about becoming people who are formed rather than are simply performative in our lives. Paulo Freire, one of my favorite scholar activists in defining praxis or the outer working of our theology, calls people to transformation through a pattern of action and reflection. It's the basics of discipleship, really. We start somewhere in that cycle of action and reflection and let reflection or learning change how we act and then act and let our action shape how we reflect. And that leads us to becoming renewed people. In Christianity, it's the process of constant conversion. That we hear the word and work of Jesus and then practice the way of Jesus and find it to be true. Being a good ancestor looks a lot like being consistent and diligent in our action and reflection and being people who don't settle for a lower bar than full humanity and freedom for all people. But this is hard. Because many of us grew up in contexts where indoctrination mattered much more than imagination and our Christianity... <laughs> And our Christianity has created a low bar where doing the minimum outside of our walls is what we settle for. Jesus in Luke 6 gives us a warning against this. And anytime Jesus gives a warning to religious people specifically, I feel it pretty intensely and feel like we need to listen. Jesus tells them to love their enemies. And then he says this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those for whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is that his followers should not expect to get credit for doing basic things. Even sinners do that. He's saying, if you love people like you, you're basic. If you lend things because you expect something back, that's way too low of a bar. Jesus then ups the ante of love and sets the standard for what it means to be his followers. And note that he does this, living it out for the rest of his ministry. Love your enemies, do good, give and lend and expect nothing in return. Now for Christian communities, I think it would be easy to think that as we attempt to do good individually or systemically, that we expect nothing in return. But when it comes down to it, this teaching of Jesus isn't just about credit, it's about motivation. In our culture, I think this teaching could sound something like, if you say Black Lives Matter, what credit is that to you? Even Amazon and Netflix do that. 
if you fight climate change in your day-to-day -day life, you don't get any credit. Secular Portlanders have been doing that for decades. If you give your money to relief efforts and reject toxic embedded Christian ideologies, so what? You're no better than sinners who have done that before you. In that, I believe that we've set a bar for Christian witness and activism too low and totally lack creativity. It's one, it's one of the ways that we co-opt the best of what's outside of us and then feel good about ourselves for doing the right thing. Even sinners do that. Scripture tells us over and over again in various iterations to not grow weary in doing good. And that's not something that we can will ourselves to by ourselves, but rather something that we have to partner with God and the community to do. For many of us with privileged identities, this development in not growing weary and fighting for God's peace in the world is a challenge. Folks of marginalized identities have spent our whole lives having to navigate people asking us to prove whether our lives matter, how our ideologies are biblical, and what this work of justice and how this work of justice is core to the person, work, and legacy of Jesus. But when it comes down to it, even if our intentions are good, many of us don't want to do the character work that it takes to become good examples, ancestors, and elders. In a social media world, it's much easier to have the optics of a just and righteous life than to actually live a just and righteous life. So I want us to be people, and it is my hope for your community that we would become people who move beyond the hollowness of symbolic faith and justice, and instead develop integrous resiliency over the long haul. By definition, resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, and significant sources of stress. Do you think we have any opportunities right now? <laughs> Some of us are getting engaged in this moment of chaos to a significant degree for the first time. And it makes sense that you're tired, shook, maybe losing relationships and ministry, ministry support. And to you, I say, welcome to the story of becoming a good elder or ancestor. This time, if we let it, will shape us from being performative in our Christianity to being people who form legacies of just and holy living. And that counts even if it's just in your family and community. This is a time for us to work towards sustainability over the long haul and to not burn out to figure out how to not just give our money to a few things when we can get credit for posting about it, but maybe it's to cap our income and to give away everything that we don't need. Maybe it's to create rhythms of self-care where we can have hard conversations at work, home, or in our political system and do so without imploding on ourselves like dying stars. Maybe it's about learning to manage our fragility or our desire for credit or doing the right thing. Maybe it's about developing a thick skin to be in this work for the long haul, to receive feedback, to do our own work, and to create change in our spheres, and to do that alongside the God who's been doing that for longer than the story of the women in Exodus. So let's pray. God, let us not grow weary in doing good, but strive toward your kingdom and your justice. Set us in this chaotic and dangerous and sad and destitute time on a trajectory toward being good ancestors and elders in the future, and good citizens and neighbors in the present. Amen.